0: In 1964, Barry Goldwater's campaign ran the slogan, In your heart, you know he's right. It was a play on Goldwater's conservative positions. In response, his opponent, Lyndon Johnson, used the counter slogan, In your guts, you know he's nuts. The American people liked LBJ's response and voted for him in a landslide. Catchy lines like these can help make or break an entire campaign. You can find out about these slogans and more in Words to Win By, a new book from Apollo Publishers. This book is brimming with 500 color images from American presidential campaigns, covering every election from 1900 to 2020. It showcases the visuals and slogans that defined America's leaders for millions of voters and changed the course of history. We are giving away five copies of Words to Win By to five lucky listeners. To sign up for the book giveaway, click on the link in the description to subscribe. At the end of March, every subscriber will be entered into the drawing for the giveaway. Again, to sign up for the book giveaway of Words to Win By, click on the link in the description or go to our website, thisamericanpresident.com, to subscribe.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.
0: Hello, everyone. Our listeners know that this is a presidential podcast, but we love all history and we want to explore non-presidential topics. And one of the most consequential men we've encountered in our episodes is Joseph Stalin, the Soviet dictator from the 1920s to 1953. We covered him in our episodes on Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry Truman. Joseph Stalin is one of the most powerful and ruthless men who've ever lived. It's impossible to study the 20th century without studying him. And we're pleased to have as our guest today, Dr. Ronald grigor Suny, do- Director of the Eisenberg Institute of Historical Studies, Professor of Social and Political History at the University of Michigan, and Emeritus Professor of Political Science and History at the University of Chicago. He just wrote a book titled "Stalin: Passage to Revolution," and it covers Stalin's life from his birth to the 1917 revolution. So, Professor, thank you for being on our show.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Yes, uh, and I I read through it. It's an absolutely fascinating read. Uh, it's also uh, very in depth on his life. What got you interested in Joseph Stalin
1: and in writing this book? So many years ago. I was, a, you know, a graduate student and looking for a dissertation topic and I studied the revolution in the city of Baku. Baku is now the capital of Azerbaijan, by the way, in the news because it's launched a war against neighboring Armenia. Mm-hmm. How topical these things suddenly become, right? Yeah. Anyway, I was interested in Baku in 1917-1918 and one thing led to another after that book I got interested in Georgia. So I wrote a book called The Making of the Georgian Nation. And inevitably, if you study the Baku Commune, where, which Stalin was involved in, from Moscow, and you study Georgia, the country in which Stalin was born, one thing led to another. And I thought, you know, in order to get people interested in these seemingly obscure and distant and remote parts of the world, like the South Caucasus, where Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia are located, maybe I should do it through the lens of Stalin. So a child of that area, Stalin, born in Gori, Georgia, becomes at one point, as you indicated, the most powerful man in the world by the end of his life.
0: Hmm, fascinating. And it, it's a very comprehensive biography. And for many people, it's it's hard to imagine Stalin as a boy, but he was, just like anyone else, any historical figure. He became a tyrant, but he was a real person. Now, looking at the historiography, you write that too often historians try to project who he was later, the totalitarian leader Stalin, into young Stalin. And you're critical of this kind of pseudo-psychological
1: approach. Uh, why is that? So I have been critical of what they call psychohistory which is really psychoanalytical history, as if it's possible to place a historical figure on the couch and analyze them as Freud might have done one of his patients. This seems to me against what we generally do as historians, which is look at all the available evidence through the archives. If we were lucky enough to have letters, we have letters of Stalin, uh, uh, memoirs, diaries, we don't have memoirs, by Stalin or diary by Stalin, but we have dozens, hundreds, by other people. So reading through that file, checking what he says about himself and what he actually does, you can get a kind of rich portrait of this young fellow, the boy who becomes a a seminary student, who then goes on to become an underground revolutionary, an outlaw, And eventually ascends within his party, the Bolshevik party, what we would call the Communist Party, to be one of its leaders, and eventually it's the autocrat of the largest country in the world. So you don't need to say, oh, it's because his father beat him as a child that he turned out to be so cruel. You can find that personality mixed with circumstance, mixed with the context, the environment in which he developed, uh, combined in a kind of uh, disastrous way in this case, eliminating empathy in his personality uh, to make him what he became. Hmm. So you note one
0: commentator who said that through him, speaking of Stalin's father, he learned to hate people. Uh, He was born in Georgia in 1879. What can you tell me about his background, his parents that you were surprised to learn?
1: First of all, the first thing I was surprised to learn is that he wasn't born in 1879 as he claimed, Mm -hmm. but a year earlier. Okay, so we actually found the documents that said, and it was it was an easy mistake that they made because of the way the document was written. But he was born a year, and he so therefore he was a year earlier, uh, younger than older than he ever claimed he was all Mm -hmm. through his life. Right. So, um, uh, and and the family he grew up in was very poor. His father was a a shoemaker. He could have done well, except he became uh, disastrously alcoholic. His mother was the strong one in the family, a woman named Keke. uh, And she made sure that the father didn't get his grip on young Stalin, that this boy, who was known as Soso and later Koba, uh, in fact, would get an education. And the irony is, when you think about where Stalin's going to go, is that the mother wanted him to be a priest and so she sent she sent him to a seminary and and he went to that seminary and that seminary in georgia well it was a rather it was the seminary was almost as dysfunctional as stalin's family was it produced more revolutionaries than it did priests <laughs> it was a georgian seminary at a time when russia the tsarist empire was in fact repressing georgians And wouldn't even let them study, except maybe, uh, you know, Georgian singing and Georgian religious texts in Georgian. They had to learn Russian. So Stalin became a a critic, and not a critic, but an opponent of this kind of Russification efforts by the the, uh, Tsarist state, and turned into a revolutionary. Years later, this is a funny anecdote, which is probably true, but maybe has come down to us as kind of apocryphal. Uh, Stalin uh, visited his mother in the capital of Georgia, Tbilisi, and uh, said, Ma, do you know what I've become? She said, no, what, what have you become? He said, well, I'm kind of like a czar. Oh, she said, hmm, too bad you didn't become a priest. <laughs> I guess you can never, uh,
0: some some moms can't be pleased, I guess. <laughs> yes. <right. laughs> that's That's very ironic. So, you write about how Marx and Darwin had a transformative effect on Stalin because it made him see the world that he knew of the Georgian Christian orthodoxy as a deception. Can you talk about that and just what uh, effect that that had? What does it mean that he saw the world as a deception?
1: So in the Georgian seminary, in this seminary in, Tbil- in Tiflis, Tbilisi, as it was called, um, the, 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 the education was dogmatic. It was narrow, it was based on censorship. But the young boys in that seminary had another school. They set up their own secret reading societies, and they assiduously read forbidden texts, among them Darwin, Marx, and I would add Russian literature, Russian uh, uh novels and uh, uh other critical texts which gave them a kind of humanistic that is this world-centered education. And through reading people like Darwin and and Marx, they eventually abandoned religion, uh, which was represented by these uh, rather authoritarian and dogmatic clerics who ran the seminary, and they turned to uh, a kind of association with what I would call the Russian intelligentsia, the radical opposition to czarism, and off they went to organize workers, to... Uh, work in the underground, the political underground, and try to make uh, a revolution
0: Hmm. and it, it's very interesting because uh when he left seminary, uh you noted that he was a meteorologist for a little while, which yes. I thought was very interesting
1: It's practically yeah. the only job he ever got paid for right hmm. was he worked in an observatory and did meteorology right but what <laughs> what he, what was happening to him was he was reading these texts let's say Marx. So Marx, you couldn't get Marx that easily, uh, but they would find a book, maybe in a secret bookstore or from a library somehow, and they would copy it very carefully overnight and then distribute it among themselves. And Marx is a powerful, powerful thinker. Marx's work basically was about, was an analysis of capitalism. And many people, had, when Stalin was young, thought, well, Russia can avoid capitalism. We can create our own future, maybe a liberal future, maybe a peasant socialism or some kind. But reading Marx, uh, people, young men like Stalin became convinced that, no, no, you know, Russia has to follow the same path as the West. We have to go through that crucible of capitalism and then come out the other end and make something called socialism or communism or whatever. Hmm. So
0: you say in the book, quote, his dominant emotion appears to be resentment, the sense that he was deprived of what justly should have been his, while others had more than they deserve. So what did he believe he was deprived of, and how did he think Marxism would solve this?
1: Stalin himself was, had what I call a kind of double alienation. One, he was poor. In a society where there were very entrenched upper classes, great polarization of wealth between the poor and the rich—I'm talking about Tsarist Russia, not the United States today—and uh, in fact, uh, that was one could resent this social or class division between where he came from, the lower classes, and those in power with privilege, property, wealth, etc. And secondly, he was Georgian, that is a small nationality with its own ancient culture, with its own language, and so forth, which he was very proud of, uh, but in an empire dominated by Russians who ran the state, who were in the army, who controlled Georgia, and Armenians, another nationality, obviously, fellow Christians, but different from Georgians, who were the middle class, who were the bourgeoisie, who owned most of the businesses in Georgia. And Even Stalin's father once worked for an Armenian, Adil Khanov, in his shoe factory. So there was both, I would say, a social resentment about what I'm deprived of because I was born poor, and an ethnic or national uh, resentment that people like me, with our distinguished culture, in fact, are treated as inferiors. Are colonized by these Armenian capitalists and these Russian bureaucrats. Hmm. So, in the book, you note
0: numerous accounts of, or uh, you document numerous accounts of Stalin engaging in violence. Uh, there's a uh, moment where he throws a knife at his father. Uh, he beats up other kids for a cheese pastry, uh, as an adult, there's a story about him on a train and getting into a confrontation, getting others to beat up uh, an individual Was Stalin, a uniquely violent person, or was this just par for the course in in his circles?
1: I think that on the streets of Gordy, where he was a little boy, um, you mentioned the, the, the cheese pastry fight. Um And by the way, you read the book very attentively i'm so i'm really, really impressed. The cheese pastry uh, one stuck with me <laughs> yeah. so um the the society had built into it violence and and uh physical um hurt done to others. that was part of it and don't forget Stalin then lived on a periphery of the empire, and the empire was ruled. Largely through coercion, through force, through violence. And when these revolutionaries decided to oppose the regime, they realized the only way to overthrow that regime is through violence and that they're going to use, that regime is going to use violence against you. And so by 1905, he actually has a small group, which are, we would call terrorists, who carry out assassinations, who carry out what they called expropriations, exes to steal money, to feed the party, to uh, nourish the revolution. So that's, that's – in a colonial situation like that, if if people want to end their, their oppression, end their colonization, uh, violence, at least they would think so, is the only means to do that. Hmm.
0: So for much of his life up until the 1917 revolution, he was basically this traveling revolutionary with no real home. Right. And you write that he'd be arrested six times from 1902, 1914, exiled six times. He would escape five times. What were those first few years of revolutionary activity like for him? You already alluded to some of it. But what was it like to you know just on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, Stalin as a young man seems to have been ra- rather recalcitrant, a kind of ornery guy. He didn't like the authority of those who were in authority over him. And I'm not talking about the Tsarist regime. I mean within his own party. Senior Marxist uh, theorists, for instance. People like the leading Georgian Marxist, Jordania, or the leading uh, Russian Marxist, uh, Georgi uh, Plekhanov. The only one he admired was Vladimir Lenin, who was the leader of his wing of the Russian Marxist movement, the Bolshevik wing. And so he was kind of pushed out of Tbilisi, Tiflis, where he started as a revolutionary. And he made his way to a city on the Black Sea called Batumi. And there, as a young man, he's still in his early 20s, he organizes or at least initiates and and, uh, carries out a major strike that leads to police shooting down workers. It's called the Batumi Slaughterhouse. And he obviously overestimated the strength of his own movement and underestimated the violence and brutality of the uh, states of, uh, uh, of soldiers. And he basically is arrested after this and spends his first time uh, in exile in Siberia. Uh, uh, so uh, you can see that right from the beginning of his career, violence, brutality, uh, conspiracy is all involved in what made a revolutionary in the czarist empire at that time.
0: Hmm. So you, you just mentioned uh, St- or Lenin, rather. What was their relationship like? And also, what was Stalin's relationship like with Trotsky?
1: So he uh, Stalin very much admired Lenin. He called him a mountain eagle. He borrowed his ideas. He propagated Lenin's points of view about the nature of the the party the Bolshevik party uh, making revolution etc that doesn't mean that they didn't have differences Stalin thought Lenin was too concerned for instance with Marxist philosophy um, Lenin of course largely had to live abroad because he would have been arrested uh, and he did his work in Switzerland and in Poland and in in Finland and elsewhere uh, but Stalin admired him tremendously now it should be noted that after the revolution, around 1922, 1923, Lenin became critical of Stalin. And before Lenin became ill, he suffered a number of strokes, he wrote what we call his testament. And in that testament, he said, Stalin has acquired too much power in our party. He's too crude. He's not comradely enough. We have to sort of remove him from this position as General Secretary of the Party. And that document, that testament, went to the highest party organ, the Politburo. They discussed it. Trotsky was sitting there, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and others. And they said, no, no, we won't. We won't remove Stalin. Uh, we'll, We'll keep him. Every one of the men around the table that day, if they had lived into the 1930s, would be murdered by Stalin. The last one being Trotsky, who in 1940, August, living in exile in Mexico, would be murdered with an axe picked to the back of his head by an agent of Stalin's. Hmm. Now, you asked also about Trotsky. As much as Stalin admired Lenin, from the first meeting, he despised and hated Trotsky. Now, it has to be understood that Trotsky was not a Bolshevik. He was not a member of Stalin and Lenin's wing of the party. He was a Menshevik, uh, another wing of the party, and, or he would sometimes have his own faction as well. And he was often very critical of Lenin. Lenin, of course, in 1917, when Trotsky came back from exile, right, around May 1917, uh, um, he had been in, of all places, the Bronx. I guess organizing the workers and the peasants of the Bronx to make revolution. But anyway, he came back. He came back to Russia, and Lenin immediately understood how talented this man as an orator, as an organizer, uh, a real intellect. And he got he agreed to let uh, Trotsky enter his party, and he used Trotsky. They not that all conflicts were gone, but Trotsky became the first Soviet foreign minister. Uh, and then when Trotsky said, "You know, I really shouldn't be." Foreign Minister of Russia, because uh, the Soviet Russia, because I'm a Jew, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism here and so forth. So he, uh, Lenin, made him uh, uh, People's Commissar of War, and he led and organized the five million man army, man and woman army, that won the Civil War uh, in 1918 through 1921. And in that time, Stalin was a particular rival of Trotsky, and eventually, when Lenin. Became incapacitated, and certainly after Lenin died, Trotsky, as Stalin joined with those other former comrades of Lenin to isolate Trotsky. They were afraid Trotsky was too powerful, too popular, head of the army, isolate him, remove him from his positions, and eventually drive him into exile.
0: Hmm. It, it, there's a fascinating quote where that you cite that where Molotov compares Lenin and Stalin, and he said. Quote, in our party, I consider Lenin alone to be a genius. Lenin was superior to Stalin, but no one could surpass Stalin as a practical worker, party organizer. And it's very fascinating that Stalin, who was very different from Lenin, would come to be his successor.
1: Certainly, that is correct. So in in, among Marxist party, in that Marxist party, among communists, there were theorists and practitioners. Praktiki i theoretiki in Russian. Uh, Stalin was a praktik. He was a pragmatic uh, party worker. Uh, there's a kind of anecdote, which is not true, where Lenin says, uh, I need someone to go out and do such and such a thing. And Trotsky says, oh, I, I, I'd love to do it by, for you, Vladimir Ilyich, but, you know, um, I have to write my book on literature and revolution. And Stalin said, I'll do it. I mean, he knew... <laughs> He would have made a great mafia boss mm-hmm. or even uh, uh, chief executive of a corporation. He knew how to play the system, how to use his advantages, his talents. He had feet on the ground. He was practical. Okay, he wasn't as sophisticated in Marxist theory as a Lenin or uh, a, a, a Trotsky or Bukharin or other Bolsheviks, but he, he was a tremendous organizer. And Molotov gets it right in the quote that you mentioned. And so he's the one that succeeds within the party. He's the one who gathers people around him. He could express complex um, issues in very simple, folkish, often very dull language. What does a good politician need? Sophisticated analyses or simple, what we would call, you know, uh, soundbite uh, points of view? Just watch the debates uh, now going on, and you see that that's what works. The bumper sticker
0: slogans. Bumper stickers, (laughs) yeah. So, you cover a lot of Stalin's private life, and there was his first wife. uh, I think it's Ekaterin Svanidze. Is that right? Um, Was I even close? Ekaterina Svanidze, yeah. Okay. Uh, Could you talk about those relationships in his private life, the ones that really stood out? So
1: he was very close to his mother, as I mentioned, and very alienated from his father. But eventually, when he leaves the seminary, he left the seminary, and he became a revolutionary. His mother, of course, was very upset by that and suffered tremendously from that. Eventually, around 1907, he meets a woman, a seamstress, a very beautiful woman named uh, Ekaterina Svanidze, and they get married. They have a child, Jakob. But very quickly, um, uh, Stalin, as a revolutionary, goes off to the oil capital of Russia, Baku, and he takes uh, Katsadina with him, and it's a hot, uh, uh, disease-ridden city, and Katsadina became ill and died quickly. Stalin then practically abandoned his son. There's a whole story about the son much later, very interesting. Um, But uh he was devastated by that loss. Uh, he says at one point to a comrade, my heart has turned to stone after that loss. And, you know, one of the themes of that book, this passage to revolution, Stalin passage to revolution, is precisely how through various episodes, being a revolutionary, working in the underground, uh, meeting up with the violence of that regime, uh, his personal relationships failing in many ways. Stalin progressively loses empathy. And empathy is a powerful emotion. You mentioned resentment. So empathy is an emotion where you're able to feel the pain of others, right? Resentment is an emotion you feel when you think someone else has gotten something that you think they don't deserve, but which you deserve. So for for, for Stalin, resentment, anger, uh, those kinds of things, hatred even, were powerful driving emotions. And they sustained him through that revolutionary outlaw career until he came to power.
0: Hmm. So what was happening in Russia during this time? And you, you cover some of the reforms under uh, St- Stolipin, The I believe he was the prime minister at the time. Could you just t- talk about the broader context?
1: Russia was uh, an autocracy. That is, a regime ruled by one man, the Tsar. Through most of Stalin's life, it was Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia, who came to the throne in 1894, who was overthrown in 1917, and murdered by the Bolsheviks in 1918. And autocracy um, was a regime which did not allow public opinion to affect things, Uh, very many people to participate in government. Which kept the working class and the great mass of the peasants, 85% of the country was peasant out of any serious decision making. So the revolution that Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky were trying to actually achieve was what Marxists would call a bourgeois democratic revolution. It was a revolution to overthrow czarism, autocracy, and actually create a liberal capitalist middle class democracy. Because Russia was so backward it was a peasant society you couldn't jump in Marxist terms from peasants to to socialism without going through capitalism industrialization formation of a large working class a proletariat that eventually could rule itself so the first stage was this democratic revolution now that would change in nineteen seventeen as Lenin moved further to a more radical position thinking we can move more quickly to socialism if we If we stimulate revolution in the West and get the West, which is more developed, more industrial, more proletarian, to support Russia in its quest to move beyond liberal democracy, capitalism. Uh, But basically, uh, the Marxists uh, were, were people who wanted to carry out that first revolution, like the American Revolution or the Great French Revolution of 1789. The irony of Russian history is when the revolution came and Russia was so, so drastically divided between a upper crust, an upper class, aristocrats, uh, industrialists uh, upstairs and workers and peasants below, you didn't have the kind of consensus to create a society based on compromise, deliberation, discussion. Real democracy, this is a problem in our own country at the moment, real democracy depends on negotiation, compromise, not murdering your opponents, but knowing that if you lose power within a democracy, you have a chance to come back to power later. But for the Bolsheviks, politics was not about compromise and negotiation. For these guys, it was war. Politics as war. Don't give your enemy anything. Take what you can and weaken them or destroy them as much as possible. Now, we even see a little bit of that in our current politics where certain politicians won't give the opposition anything. But that's harmful to democracy. But that was politics as war, politics as an extension of political warfare that was key to trying to understand why the Russia Russia went from a liberating emancipatory grassroots revolution where ordinary people were out in the streets calling for something better in 1917 to a auto, new to autocracy a tyranny a dictatorship by Stalin by the 1930s hmm.
0: So Stalin is in his mid 30s when World War 1 breaks out uh, but instead of fighting in that meat grinder of a war he's in exile many right. com- yes many communists see the war as just a bunch of capitalist countries going at it and they hope for revolution to to break out lenin even hoped that the tsarist government would lose in the war what did stalin think
1: so stalin was way out in siberia in the most isolated place you can imagine right i mean and and uh, all the details of what he thought were very difficult to uh, discern and to find, and uh, w- what I found was he was close to Lenin. So there, there were let me, let me go this way. It's a little bit complicated, but I'll, I'll make it cl- as clear as I can. There were kind of three positions among the Marxists on the war. One, the right-wing position was defensist. Plekhanov, for instance, had that view. That is, we're Russians, we have to fight for Russia, we have to be patriotic, and the Germans are the real aggressors here, defensism. A second position uh, was a kind of middle ground position that said, no, the war is bad. We mustn't, we mustn't uh, uh, defend Russia in this war, but you know, we'll, we'll support as much as we can to a certain degree the war effort. So there's kind of a middle position. Lenin's position was far more radical. It was what you could call defeatist. He said it would be good if my own country lost the war, it would spark revolution. It would end this meat grinder of a war, as you called it, this imperialist war of one capitalist nation against another, and we can move on to a better world altogether. It's extraordinary. Imagine a, a person calling for the defeat of his own government. That's very rare in history, though there were some people who did that uh, in during the Vietnam War when so many of us considered America's role in that war to be a disaster. So this does happen. Now, where was Stalin? I know Stalin uh, uh, took a position against the war, but I didn't see any evidence, and I'm very suspicious that he ever went as far as Lenin for a defeatist position. And when he came back from Siberia to Petrograd, to the capital of Russia, the city we call St. Petersburg today, he in fact took a very moderate position until lenin came back from switzerland and then he went along with lenin
0: hmm. so there's a very interesting episode you talk about when stalin was he was talking to some people from siberia who went out to fish and one of them drowned <laughs> and everyone seemed to be in that group seemed to be pretty unconcerned and in fact they were more concerned about someone who lost a horse, I think. And Stalin (laughs) was shocked by this. How do you square that with the man who would later become the Stalin that people would know from history that would kill millions? How do I
1: square it? With difficulty, very great difficulty. (laughs) Now, this is an anecdote that Stalin reported, right? So native peoples in Siberia, uh, who Stalin befriended and seemed to enjoy being with went out fishing. Stalin would find a little spot, and he seemed to do rather well out there. And then he realized that when they got back to camp, back to the village, that someone was missing, and no one seemed concerned. And he asked about this. And their answer was, uh, you can always make another human being, but you can't make a horse. So it's far worse to lose your horse or your mule or whatever than to lose a human being. And then Stalin becomes this person in the, in the 1930s who carries out the great purges, basically murdering all of Lenin's lieutenants who survived to that period, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Imagine this in the year 1937, 1938, the regime shot, executed 700,000 people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not counting those it sent to prison camps, those who died on the way. Uh, those who whose lives were ruined by prison and exile, etc. It's extraordinary, right? What were they doing? What were they thinking? And when you kill people, you're killing who? The most productive peasants, the ones they called kulaks, who they threw off their land. Intellectuals, uh, party bosses, uh, generals. He killed five the five top generals three years before they were go- went to war with with Nazi Germany. Right. It's it's incredible. In other words, Stalin, by decapitating the nation, drove Russia backwards. In a sense, it made the Soviet Union stupider. (laughs) Right. And very much unprepared for the war, the colossal war that was going to come. Remember, World War Two was the largest confrontation, military confrontation between two states in world history. The Russians, the Soviet people lost 27 million people in that war. We should give them credit, of course, because in World War II, who defeated Nazi Germany? The Soviet Union did. Who ended the Holocaust? Who liberated Auschwitz? The Soviet Army. We forget that. Recently, the New York Times did a thing on Forgotten Heroes on World War II, and there was nothing about the Soviet Union except one picture of Soviet soldiers dancing with Americans, right? So we've wiped out a lot of Soviet history or we've simply pushed Soviet history into the worst aspects of it. That is the great purges, Stalinism, uh, decalocization, and and all the horrors that he oversaw. Hmm.
0: There was a quote by one of Stalin's associates I thought was so revealing. Uh, he said, the so so that I knew, a good comrade, loyal in friendship, jovial, loving jokes, sociable, and sensitive to human misery, there's not accord with the sto- uh There does not accord with this. Uh, let me see. Uh, who eliminated without hesitation by Machiavellian beans all his adversaries, friends or not, filled concentration camps without pity in order to have the workforce needed for great works of national interest, drowning in blood even his own
1: land of birth, Georgia, that he loved so much. Very powerful quote, and I think very, very accurate, right? So Stalin begins, you know, this is the the irony and the paradox, right? As As a kid, as a romantic poet, as someone who was known as Bulbuli Nightingale because he had a beautiful singing voice as a religious person, uh, you know, followed his mother's uh, dictates to become a priest and then turns over time. No one is born an outlaw. No one is born a criminal, but uh, over time, whatever his, the mix of his personality was, the circumstances uh, over time eliminated certain kind of humane traits. And he became this pragmatic. Machiavellian figure who calculated carefully what was needed, what he wanted, and he identified himself with what was the good of the Soviet people, right? So there was that equation. Many politicians do that. And then determine the best way to do it was this. Now, it turns out, in my opinion, he was colossally mistaken. He murdered people and drove Russia backward. Uh, There were other Bolsheviks, other communists, other Marxists who thought this is outrageous what he's doing. Of course, they would eventually lose their lives as well. So there were alternatives to Stalin, but through circumstances, his own uh, uh, abilities, uh, the backwardness of Russia, which aided him and thwarted others, the isolation of the Soviet Union, it was Stalin, of all people, who came to power after Lenin and carried out a rather ruthless industrialization of Russia, okay, and a rather ruthless uh, war f- war in-, in World War II, which led to victory, of course, and probably saved Western democracy and capitalism. It was the Soviet Union who saved the West from the scourge of Nazism. Right? They faced three quarters of the troops of the Nazi troops, uh, and and we dealt with with uh, the rest. Uh, so so. This was a great achievement on his part, but at enormous cost, such great cost, that eventually the Soviet Union would not sustain it. So
0: the revolution, obviously it happens in 1917, one of the most important events in human history. What was Stalin's role in the revolution? And what do you think were his personal ambitions at the time? Was this someone plotting to rise to the top of the party
1: or to play his role? Yeah, I don't think he would have that much foresight that he knew that he would succeed and be at the top. After all, he was a man from the periphery of the empire. Uh, there were far more talented figures, uh, but he would take advantage of opportunities. He was very shrewd. He was, interestingly enough, not one of the most radical revolutionaries among the communists. Uh, he was a centrist. He was a moderate all the way through the middle into the late 1920s and only in the late 1920s does he make a rapid move you could say to the left and ca- and want to carry out radical uh, proposals like collectivization of agriculture etc etc so i don't think he saw, you know, had plotted this out. It would be, it'd make a nice story, it'd make a nice movie, but it wasn't quite like that. But he was, he was pragmatic, as I mentioned, and he took advantage of every opportunity that he saw. Uh, when it was useful to be close to Lenin, he was close to Lenin. At the end of his life, he had a quarrel. I mean, at the end of Lenin's life, Stalin had a quarrel with Lenin. He retreated tactically, right? Uh, he allied with other comrades of Lenin, Zinoviev. In Kamenev against Stalin when Zinoviev and Kamenev in the, around the middle of the 1920s became critical of Stalin Stalin allied with another old comrade of of Lenin's Bukharin and then at the end when he then had his own firm grip on the top of the party he got rid of Bukharin as well right ultimately he used the police to police not only the the party and the army, and secure his own autocratic control, but he even used the police to police the police and get rid of those who were not ready to commit really criminal, murderous acts to establish Stalin's full control of the country.
0: Hmm. So you talk about this incredible transformation of a man who had always been on the margins. He was a provincial outlaw who was trying to take down authority, and then when the Bolsheviks, Bolsheviks take power, he begins this ascent to the top of national power. How was he able to make that transition?
1: It works in, in kind of stages, right? So, let's start with 1917. He, comes from, he came from Siberia to Petrograd, he was an important figure, but in a minority party, the Bolshevik party was you know not very important in the early part of 1917 then lenin came back to russia in in april and lenin took this radical position in the revolution said let's not agree to support this government we have this bourgeois government let's call for all power to the soviets to the councils soviet is council in russian of workers deputies and soldiers deputies and through 1917 A process of radicalization of the bottom of society occurred. Soldiers were against the war. The government was pursuing the war. Workers wanted greater control uh, over over the factories, and they wanted higher salaries. The industrialists were unwilling to go much further than they had at the beginning of the revolution, and eventually uh, the bourgeois government lost lost uh, support, and Lenin and the Bolsheviks through the Soviets were able to take over. So suddenly. This obscure peripheral figure, Stalin, is what we would call a minister. They call them people's commissars. And he was put in charge of nationalities. That is the half of the new country that was not Russian, right? Uh, the, there was a people's commissariat of nationalities, uh, and he had this extraordinary role. Not only that, he sat on every committee. Uh, he uh, was, was involved at the front during the Civil War. Uh, And he took this moderate middle position that won him lots of supporters. Eventually, Stalin made him general secretary. I'm sorry, Lenin made Stalin general secretary of the party, which gave him great control over appointing party members to different offices. So there he was, the personnel guy, putting his guys in different positions. That also helped him win out. And as the centrist, he managed to form coalitions. He was really good at that. Uh, Coalitions that eventually supported him. And step by step, he came to power by the by 1930. He was indisputably the main leader. And then he used real violence against anyone who might have opposed him. Interestingly enough, he had already defeated everyone when he turned to the purges and used that kind of violence. That is really physically murdering people or exiling them to achieve personal autocracy, personal dictatorship, what you had called appropriately tyranny or despotism.
0: Hmm. So you quote scholar Eric Van Rie who said, quote, Stalin was a true believer – Generally speaking, the greatest crimes in history have been committed by the sincere, those who believe in their hearts that they are justified in committing their acts. Do you, do you believe that that's an accurate analysis of Stalin?
1: I think Stalin was a true believer in his version of Marxism. It certainly wouldn't be my version. Uh, and it wasn't the version of Trotsky. And it wasn't the version of social democrats or democratic socialists in the West. You know, Marxism is a big school. It's sort of like Christianity. And there are a lot of disputes. If you get two Marxists in a room, even two Trotskyists, they'll fight with each other, right? And but Stalin had his own version, which he called Marxism-Leninism. You might call it Marxism-Stalinism, and it was a very rigid reading. And of course, in that reading, uh the party was supreme, and he was supreme in the party, and allegiance meant full conformity to what Stalin thought was the right way to do things, right? Uh, And that included, uh, as well, brutal suppression of enemies of the people. Vragin naroda, they called them, enemies of the people. Uh, Now, Marxism, in the words of Karl Marx, in the readings of Karl Marx, is supposed to be the most democratic system imaginable. The working class itself is supposed to be ruling in the society. Workers, ordinary people, not the owners of the factories, etc. Look how distorted Stalinism was from that original vision. Okay, maybe that vision is utopian. You could say that. Uh, Lots of people say, you know, Marx and socialism is a great idea. It'll never work. Well, there are lots of different socialisms. People are really interested now in what is socialism. We're all confused in this country about what it might be. So in the West, liberals and conservatives often identify socialism with what? With Stalinism. How convenient. Because who would want that system anywhere in the world, right? Whereas, you know, so, and, and the legacy of Stalin and of the Soviet Union is like a heavy weight on socialism. Because in America, we don't even know that there are democratic socialist parties, you know, in Scandinavia or in Germany and much of of Europe. Uh, And and still, that's a hope to make things better uh, in in the future. Well, it's changing in America. There are now people who are trying to question that dire and dark view of equating socialism with Stalinism. It's said, in fact, that some 50% of young people today think positively about socialism and are much more critical of capitalism than their parents ever were.
0: So uh, what are your plans for, uh, I guess, maybe a second book, a second volume? Is that (laughs) in the works?
1: So uh, that's the real thing. Now, that book took me 33 years to write, and it only carries Stalin up to the revolution and their coming to power in 1917. So it's the first half of his life. And then uh, the question is, would I have enough time uh, to go on with the second half of his life. And I do want to try that. And I have uh, graduate students who have been working on collecting the material so that I can write that book. But at the present time, I've been intrigued by by the turn in world politics toward greater nationalism, authoritarian populism, uh, a move away from liberal democracy and socialist democracy towards more state control, the kind of thing that We've seen, you know, in Hungary under Orban, Poland under Kaczynski, in Russia under Putin, in Turkey under Erdogan, and let's face it, in America under Trump. So I've been writing a book. I'm writing a book at the moment, which I'm calling Forging the Nation, The Making and Faking of Nationalisms, Enjoying It Tremendously, and Teaching a Course at the University of Michigan, which is helping me enormously put that material together.
0: Great. Well, we look forward to uh, more of your scholarship, and we're grateful that you've been able to be on this show and to talk about your work, your 33-year work. So that's that's (laughs) quite an odyssey. But thank you so much on just providing your insight on one of the most important men in in human history.
1: You were one of the best interviews I've ever met, too. So (laughs) I thank you. I'm grateful for you. And it was a great pleasure to talk about the book.
0: Thank you so much. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President.